Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Revelation 12 this morning. Revelation 12 is our Christmas text. I was thinking this weekend, I've had the opportunity to preach um, the Sunday, Lord's Day, before Christmas, or on Christmas, depending on what year it is, for 20 years now. So in that time, you're always kind of thinking, where do I go? What would be the best place for us to um, spend our time in meditation? And of course, the Old Testament, familiar texts like Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9 would be texts that we're familiar with having for a Christmas uh, sermon or message, or even Micah, where their prediction of where the Lord Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Then you go to the New Testament, of course, the choices are Matthew 1, if you're looking from the perspective of Joseph, or Matthew 2, if you're looking from the perspective, or, or, or I'm sorry, Luke 2, if you're looking from the perspective of Mary. And then if you want to see what the wise men were thinking, you go to Matthew 2. I, I thought about it, and I preached messages from Philippians 2. That's a good text for a Christmas message. And John 1, another good text. This one is a very good text, but probably not as familiar to you. Uh, Revelation 12 is where I'm asking you to turn, and I would just like to, to look at the first five verses. This text that I'm drawing you to this morning is probably, again, less familiar, but critically important. It's dramatic, it's potent, it's powerful, it's riveting. I will dare say that it's well nigh unforgettable once you've been there. I do believe that if this is unfamiliar text to you, that hopefully after our experience together this morning, through looking at it, you'll never forget it. So this is the Holy War. This is the real Star Wars, and I've titled this message Behind the Scenes of Christmas. And what we're looking at here is the dragon is going to take his place, the red dragon, the great red dragon, is going to take his place alongside of the donkeys and the sheep. Now, we had a live nativity here on Friday night. It was phenomenal, so good. I really thank Derek and um, Nicole and their baby, Luca, was actually in the manger. Some of you didn't realize he was so asleep and so cozy warm, you didn't even know that was a real baby. But we had no great red dragon. We could have, though. And I don't think any of our nativity scenes generally have the great red dragon, but it's certainly a part of the nativity, and I hope you'll see that this morning. This is not the nativity story that you probably grew up with, but it is just as important nonetheless. In these five verses, here's what we're going to see. That in the person of Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, when he was born, God engaged Satan in the ultimate battle of this cosmic holy war. So what we celebrate at Christmas is really the tip of the iceberg it's the climax of something that has been taking place in eternity past and will consummate in eternity future. And what I mean by eternity past is before the earth was created, this holy war was on. And the birth of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, was the climax or one of the climaxes of that battle or one of the battles of that holy war. So in Jesus Christ, in the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, Christmas. Have I called it enough? Advent, all right? Um, the first advent of Christ. This was when God engaged Satan in the ultimate battle of the holy war. So if you're taking notes, three characters that we're going to see in our passage. 
And I want to define who those characters are at the beginning and then prove it to you. Only one of them is debated. The first one is the character of a woman who is pregnant and in birth pains. Then there's the character of the big red great dragon. And then there is the male child. Now, I believe, and I'm going to seek to prove to you, that the woman is Israel. There is some debate about whether the woman is Mary or the woman is the church or kind of a hybrid, the community of faith, but I'm going to argue that it is Israel. Dragon is very clear in our text later on in verses 7 to 9 that the dragon, the great red dragon, is Satan. He's the serpent. He's the devil. And then the male child is none other than Jesus Christ. Okay, So those are our three characters. Let's read our text. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So all of a sudden you can sense the nativity scene here, right? Just in a different way. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, or seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And then the third character, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. <clears throat> but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So three characters I want us to look at. The first one is the woman, the second is the dragon, and the third is the male child. First of all, the woman. Now, this is described as a great sign. You're going to notice that the second sign is mentioned in verse number three. There are seven signs in all that we're going to notice between, if you were studying chapters 12 to the beginning of chapter 15, seven different signs. Now, if you're studying the book of Revelation, we don't have a lot of time for context. What you'll notice in your study of the book of Revelation is that there are, first of all, seven seals that are opened up after the messages to the seven churches in the first couple of chapters. And then there are seven trumpets. The last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, sounded in chapter 11. I believe that that's the consummation. And then there's the seven bowl trumpets, or the seven bowl judgments. And I believe that is the end of the tribulation period. Now what we find in the book of Revelation is this is described as a moment of seven years of intense tribulation where Israel has a particular part, and the last three and a half years, the last 1260 days, you'll notice in verse number six, are particularly intense. Now, that background may or may not help you, but chapter 12 to 15 is actually one of those parentheticals in the book of Revelation. In other words, if you're looking to move linearly, if you're studying the book and you believe this to be futurist, which I believe, there's some that read the book of Revelation and they think this has already been fulfilled or we're presently living in it, I don't believe that's good Bible interpretation, um, but we will agree to disagree until we're all in heaven and they find out that I'm right. But um, as we look at the book of Revelation, chapter 12 to 15 is a parenthetical, and it's a recap, but something even better than that. I don't know about you, but I enjoyed particularly, and to my mom's chagrin, finding cliff notes when I was supposed to be reading whole books when I was in junior high and high school. Cliff Notes, of course, give you the summary of the book without you having to read the book and become educated like I should have. But I would often look for the Cliff Notes. 
Well, Cliff notes the value of it is it gives you the summary without you having to read the whole thing. This is one of those summary passages of what's been happening before the world was created in eternity past all the way to eternity future in one little short paragraph. What we have here is we have the redemptive story summarized for us and visually laid out for us in drama. So hopefully that's helpful to you. There are seven signs. This is the first. The word sign, semion in Greek, means to have something as a symbol that points to a reality. So whenever we see these signs, we should not believe them to be real. They are symbolic of something that's real, a reality, and oftentimes something that's much larger than the symbol. We do that here at a Baptist church, don't we? We say this often when we have Lord's table or baptism. We say this is a symbol or a sign. It's not the reality. So we tell you that when we're eating the bread and drinking the juice, that is not becoming the body of Christ. He's not being re-sacrificed. It's a symbol. It's, it points to a reality. Same with baptism. Well, that's exactly what these symbols are. They're signs. If you go into the borough, you're going to see, welcome to Downingtown. You know that that sign is not Downingtown. <laughs> That sign tells you that you entered Downingtown, all right? It's a symbol. That's exactly what these are. They're to help us understand and summarize these greater realities, this cosmic battle that has been taking place since eternity past. So this sign, this first sign, is that of a woman. It's a called a great sign. The word mega is mentioned a lot in this parenthetical. You're going to see great, 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 great. What is he saying? It's not that they're just big in size, but he's saying they're big in significance. So it, it, it's, it's important for us as believers to do the, the hard work at times to say, okay, so what do these symbols mean? And that's what I want us to do this morning. First of all, the woman. She is described as a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, I believe, I've already said to you, that this woman is Israel. There are some that believe that it's Mary, because obviously she's giving birth to the man-child. The man-child is Jesus. According to Roman Catholics, it must be Mary. It should be Mary. Well, one thing to remember is these are signs. These are not literal people. Later on in chapter 12, she's referred to as, again, as being mistreated and having to, you'll like this around here, she's flown with large eagle's wings out to a safe place. And so we know that this is not a literal woman. Others would say, well, it's the church. Well, just a reminder, in the book of Revelation, four women symbolically are mentioned. This will just help you in your study. You can decide whether you agree with me or not. But for further study, these four women that are mentioned, this is one of them. The one of them that is mentioned early on in chapter 2 is Jezebel. Jezebel represents or is symbolic of paganism or false teaching. And also we see the harlot that is mentioned in chapter 17. The harlot represents, I believe, and is symbolic of the apostate church. And then we see the bride. We all know what the bride is, the lamb, prepared, pre the bride prepared for the lamb um, as our bridegroom. That is the church found in chapter 19. This is the other woman that's mentioned. Now, the bride or the church is never mentioned as being a wife. She's a bride awaiting her husband, the lamb. Nor is she ever mentioned as being pregnant. So I believe this is Israel. Also, in the context of the book of Revelation, 
Israel seems to have an important key role in end-time drama. Again, if you've studied eschatology, you know that the book of Revelation is heavily built on another book called Daniel, Old Testament book. And in Daniel 7 through 9, there is a clear layout of this same description in the book of Revelation, that there have been 77-year periods, 69 are all done, there's seven more left, and Israel is the prime star, or the prime target in those seven years. So I believe as you read the book of Revelation, just in normal context and normal interpretation, you would come to, this has to be Israel. If that's not convincing to you enough, one of the key interpretive rules that we, or tools that we have is when you're confused about something, you compare scripture with scripture. You let other passages of scripture help you understand what's ambiguous. So for instance, the book of Genesis. Well, I shouldn't have told you. I was going to ask you. Bible trivia. Where do you remember this kind of language before? The moon and the sun and the stars bowing down. Do you ever remember that kind of terminology in your Bible reading? Genesis. I already said it. Genesis where? Anybody? 37. Remember when Joseph has his dreams? Joseph says this. He dreamed another dream, or it's said of him in the narrative, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars are bearing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So I believe this description is of Israel. You have the 12 stars in the crown, which represents each of the um, tribes and each of the sons of Jacob, of Israel. So that's what I believe is happening here. Now, what does that help us in terms of interpretation and particularly application? So the woman is Israel. She's in great birth pains. She's crying out in pain to have her child. But I want you don't, not to miss something that this began, this battle between, we already know the red dragon, the great red dragon is Satan, this battle between the great red dragon and the woman, where did we first hear about this war, this battle that would take place between the two of them? Again, back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We call it the proto-evangelium. That's fancy word for first gospel. And you know who got the first gospel? Satan. He got the first gospel when God said to him, you now are going to, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head and you are going to bruise his heel. So this all began in the garden. Now how do we interpret this sign of her in great birth pains and we know the next character, the great red dragon, is trying to kill or trying to prevent this seed from being born. This is fascinating, but I want it to help you in your Bible reading. I want it to help you in your celebration of Christmas from here forward. I don't want us to forget this. Some of you are going to get all intrigued about, well, how do we put this on the graph? Please set that aside for a moment. I'm not talking to you about graphs and time charts right now. I'm talking to you about the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he says the first great sign was Israel, this woman. And I want you to see how over four millennia before the birth of Jesus Christ, there was this battle, the great red dragon trying to attack the woman from having 
the child. Think about it this way. From Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end of Malachi, or we should say, actually to the beginning of Matthew 1 or Luke 2, this battle was going on. So do you read that as you read your Old Testament? When you read your Bible, do you see this battle, this ongoing war taking place? So when Abel is killed by Satan, do you think he just was angry? Well, we find out in 1 John that actually Satan had motivated Cain to kill his brother. What about in Genesis 6 when we have that really strange tale of when the sons of God came into the women and they had these children that were almost, as it seems from the text, to be half-human mongrel, half-demon, and they seem to be an unredeemable race. Now, we don't know that for sure, but something odd is going on in Genesis 6, right before the flood. What about when Pharaoh commands the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, to kill all of the Hebrew sons, or the, all the Hebrew male children? Who is behind this? What about the period of the judges? What about Saul trying to murder David, who the second David, the ultimate David, was going to sit on his throne? What about all those times he tried to eliminate, essentially, the messianic line? I mean, as you're reading your Old Testament, you're going, this is the woman who is in birth pains. She's crying out. What about the divided kingdom? I know you enjoy this, but when you're reading in 2 Chronicles, how many of you love reading in 2 Chronicles? All God's people said, woo. But when you're reading 2 Chronicles, have you noticed that there are two times, two times, where the seed of David dwindles down to one fragile child? And if you're reading it with the big picture in mind, you're going, what's going to happen? I mean, if, if they're wiped out, where do the promises go? And what about Haman? The first genocide against the Jewish people, his mission against the Jewish people in Esther. What about the devil inciting Israelites and Jews to kill their own children as they were offering them to idols? And then you get to the New Testament, and we're not surprised at all that when Mary delivers baby Jesus, who's waiting to kill babies? Herod. He wants to kill all of them because he'd recently give, been given the title king of the Jews. He was very envious. We're not surprised that immediately when the Lord Jesus is baptized, he is pushed to the wilderness. And who tempts him? Satan tempts him. In Luke 4, the people of Nazareth are trying to push him over the top of a cliff. They want to kill him. Who's behind all of this? And who's ultimately behind the cross? Well, we know ultimately who's behind the cross. But, but in terms of the destroying the seed, there seems to be some temporary rejoicing that they thought, that Satan thought, that the great red dragon thought, that they had annihilated the woman. You see, as you read Old Testament history, do you get this? When you read Old Testament history, read it with a redemptive eye. Read it with a, this is the woman who has, going, has the promised seed, she's going to deliver the promised seed, but Satan is doing everything he can to destroy and annihilate this promise from being fulfilled. You see that? I don't guess you do, but, but I hope you see it. <laughs> Shake your head if you see it, or I'll do it all again. No, that's my threat. That's not a promise. You perhaps have heard this story, but I think it's helpful. In the late 19th century, when Queen Victoria was sitting on her throne, 
she had an interesting prime minister, and many of you will know, you historians, his name was Benjamin Disraeli. And there was a question at one point that Queen Victoria, I'm not sure exactly why she asked Disraeli this question, but she asked this question. She said, what evidence can you give me, Mr. Prime Minister, of the existence of God? Disraeli thought for a moment, and then he said, the Jew, your majesty. What was his point? His point was, all of these moments, and when it seems like all of the hosts and minions of hell are trying to destroy the woman, they couldn't do it. You see, all of those moments when you're reading and you see that Joseph resisted the temptation and the solicitation to commit fornication and adultery with Potiphar's wife, and then when David's heart is led to repentance, and when Esther puts aside her fear and goes and speaks to the king, all of these moments in the drama, what should we be thinking? God is preserving the woman. He's keeping his promises they're all going to be fulfilled. You remember in 2 Corinthians, it's worded this way. All of the promises of God are yes and amen in who? In Jesus. And believer, I want you to hear this. 2 Thessalonians 5 puts it this way. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. So if you ever have gotten to the Christmas story and you're, you're looking for a little bit of emotional oomph, and sometimes, if we're honest, that's what we do. We become culturally squeezed and so Christmas while we have the Christmas story it's become so layered with the fantasy of you know Santa and all the other strappings that we we, we lose the awe of what took place in Bethlehem that, that what took place in Bethlehem actually started in Eden but even before that we're going to see in the next character started in eternity past we lose some of the awe that that God preserved his people through 4,000 years to keep his promise in the garden. So this woman, she's a symbol, I believe, of Israel. And I, I could actually subscribe to an ongoing picture of God's community of faith and his people. But secondly, I want you to see the dragon. The dragon. Again, we know his identity. And if you look at real quickly at verses 9 and 10, I've got these listed for you in your handout. These are some names for the dragon. He's the ancient serpent. He's the devil. He's Satan. He's the deceiver of the world. He's the accuser of our brothers. This is the second great sign. Now, he's described as great, again, mega, but he's also described as red. I believe that this really speaks to what Jesus said about Satan. He is a murderer. He happened from the beginning, and it talks about his fiery destruction, his bloodshed. Now, only in the book of Revelation is Satan called a dragon. You'll notice that. He's referred to about 13 times through the whole book as a dragon. And that's supposed to communicate to us not the, you know, red figure that has the pitchfork and the long tail. It's supposed to communicate that he's large, he's ferocious, he's a terrifying animal. He's somebody to be afraid of. We don't do our children any help, really, when we teach them to tell Satan to sit on attack. But that's for another day. But the truth of the matter is, our understanding that he is not omniscient, he's not God's opposite, he is a creature. But even Michael, the great archangel, said, I will not rebuke you. Remember in Jude? This is a very curious passage. They're arguing about where Moses' body was buried. That seems like an irrelevant argument probably to most of us. They were arguing about it. 
And Michael wouldn't even rebuke Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you. What are we to learn from a text like that? We're supposed to learn from a text like that, like we see in other places, that Satan is not somebody that we should put off to the mythical category. He's a real enemy. Now, he's described here as having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, because I'm a futurist in my interpretation, I see in these seven heads his control, his earthly control, the control of large countries and nations and dominating powers. So I would look at this and I would say those seven heads would, re- would represent Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and ultimately the Antichrist confederation of ten nations that you see in Revelation 17. You say, well, I'm not a futurist, I'm a preterist. Okay, we're not going to argue about that, but I do want you to see what you see in this text is Satan is powerful. And he is, has an IQ that's off the charts. He's not omniscient. He's not God's opposite. But for 4,000 years, he's been tempting people. He's good at it. And as we're going to see next week in, second, in 1 Peter chapter 5, that, that like a roaring lion, he is walking about seeking whom he may devour. He is active. He, he's also active with his demons. We're told that he, with his tail, swept one-third of the stars from heaven. Now, stars are referenced as angels, as messengers in the other places of Scripture. And again, I believe this is a reference to eternity past. You could go to Isaiah 14, or you could go to Ezekiel, and you'll see other passages that describe what I believe to be the origins of Satan, that he was once a high ruler in heaven. His name was Lucifer, probably either higher than Michael and Gabriel, or at least as high. He seems to have been a leader in the music in heaven. But one time he rebelled, and at that rebellion we're told that he took a third of the angels with him and they became demons. Now again, when you read something like this, you'd say, well, so how many demons does he have? Well, we don't know. But in chapter 9 we're told that there are 200 million demons that will be released near the Euphrates River. So If one-third, if that's all he has, that would mean that God has at least 400 million holy angels. You say, this sounds like science fiction. Well, don't think it's science fiction. It's Ephesians 6. We don't fight flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. They, They have an organized system. This is not fantasy. This is real. And because it's real, he's reminding us that all of redemptive history... It started before the creation of the world and the rebellion of Satan when he took these angels and they became demons and now he has an organized force. It's important in our study of Satan or pneumatology or or demonology, I should say. It's part of pneumatology when we talk about demons and Satan to realize that he's not presently in hell and according to scripture, he's never been there. So this idea that he's down there with a pitchfork is not scriptural. But he's going there. And when he goes there, we're told he won't be in charge. But right now, his present activity is mostly in heaven. And in the heavens and in the sphere, we're told that he is the prince and power of the air. And like Job, we're told that he went and accused Job before God. And I believe he is actively doing that now. While his demons are more involved here on the earth. Later on in the chapter, it talks about a time period. Again, I believe futurist. When Satan will be confined to the earth in that very dark three and a half years of the tribulation. 
But the point I want you to see here is this great red dragon is after you. He's after you. He doesn't want you to love and serve the male child. He doesn't want you to give your life for abandon to the male child. He doesn't want you to say no to temptation and no to sin and live a holy life. He doesn't want that. He's your enemy. Again, you historians may enjoy this, but uh, during World War II, of course you know George C. Patton, but his nemesis, Erwin Rommel, on the German side, was actually a military theorist. He wrote books on military strategy. And George Patton, as any good military leader would do, read all of Rommel's books. So he read all of his books, he learned his strategy, and that knowledge actually helped him outmaneuver Rommel in a couple of battles. Now, I wasn't able to confirm this part of the story, but to me it's the best part of the story. I hope it's real. But my understanding is one time, Rommel and Patton were so close in one of their skirmishes that Patton yelled out, I read your book, Rommel. <laughs> I don't know if that happened, but that would be grand. He's basically saying, the reason I'm beating you in this strategic moment is because I read your books. I know how you think. The Apostle Paul says something similar. He says, don't be ignorant of Satan's devices. James while not mentioned, Satan says it just like this. He says, here's what happens. Every man is tempted of his own desires. So Satan, outside of us, uses our desires, and when temptation has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. It's this sinful spiral. Do you realize that Satan is actively at work in that way? His IQ is off the charts. He crafts temptation specifically custom-fitted for you. So with that big picture, could we start asking ourselves some questions and maybe start getting some answers? Why do some churches die? Why do Christians die? Why do some Christians go hungry? They get into accidents or they get cancer. Why do they face persecution? Why do pastors sometimes fall into great sin and cast shame on the gospel of Jesus Christ and disrepute upon the church? Why do some churches grow loveless and cold? Why do other churches forsake the truth of Scripture for lies? Why do church members fight among themselves? Why do Christians attack one another? Why are there hypocrites in the church? Why does everything seem to be going wrong in our life when we're trying to follow hard after God? Why does it seem like God doesn't answer your prayer? Why do you get so easily hurt and offended by other people? Why do we hold grudges? Why do we think the worst about each other? Why do churches tolerate clear moral deviancy and theological error in their midst? Why do some churches get bigger and flashier but not deeper and wiser? Why do churches get complacent and ordinary and lazy? Why do we not care more about missions and sharing the gospel? Why is the church ridiculed by intellectuals and cultural elites why do we have such a problem finding a perfect church? Why are churches divided by race and education, social positions? Why are churches often biblically illiterate? Why can't EBBC be a better church? Why is life so hard as a Christian? There's at least four good biblical answers. 
one of them I'm talking to you about now. One of them is God's completely sovereign and he allows these things to come into our lives because he's good and it's for his glory and he's making us like his son. Second reason is we live in a fallen world that's groaning, waiting for the day of redemption, for Jesus to come back. Yes? Third, we're sinners. And all God's people said, yes. <laughs> but the fourth one is the devil is bent. He is hell-bent on destroying you. Don't discount that fourth reason. Oh, that's the mythical one. I mean, the other three are practical. I can't see the fourth one. The devil is hell-bent on destroying you, destroying you spiritually, causing your heart to grow cold to the things of Christ. He loves it when you're bitter. He loves it when you're angry. He loves it when you gossip, when we gossip. He loves it. He loves it when we're too mute to share the gospel. He is bent on destroying you. So when we see this raging great red dragon, don't put it off to mythology. He wants to destroy you. Put on the whole armor of God. And then we see the male child. He is couched down, and it's so picturesque of the birth in Bethlehem, like Herod. You can almost see Herod in the person of the dragon he wants to destroy Christ but what happens she gave birth to a male child by the way how do we know he's Christ here he is one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron we know who that is Psalm 2 he is going to be the great king of kings and lord of lords he will ruin and reign, rule and reign forever now I believe again as a futurist he's talking about a literal kingdom a thousand year reign that's coming but what he is pointing to is this, this, the fulfillment of the promise that he had made for his son to crush the head of Satan. But then it says, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, what's amazing about this is John compresses the entirety of the life and work of Christ into one little sentence. Do you notice that? He's born and he's caught up. <laughs> it, it was like he was born and he ascended. You're like, wait, wait, a lot happened between the birth and the ascension. Why did you just do the cliff note thing, John? Well, well he's reminding us that, that he came and he accomplished his work and the declaration that his finished work was accomplished was by his powerful resurrection and his ascension led to his session at the right hand of the Father on the throne. It means that the work of Christ is complete. And we look forward to the consummation of that person and work of Christ with his second coming. But I want you to see, he, he deals with the incarnation, that's Christmas, the exaltation and the ultimate coronation all in one little phrase. What's our takeaway? Well, we know this male child is Jesus. We know this male child is the promised one because how does Matthew 1 open up? You're glad I didn't choose Matthew 1, the first 14 verses, aren't you? for our Christmas text this morning. If you know what Matthew 1, 1 to 14 is, you're saying, praise God, he didn't do it. It's a genealogy. You're like, wow, that's a Christmas narrative, all right. But it starts this way. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Here he is. Here's your king. Here's the one promise since Genesis 3, 15. Here he is. That's what's happening in, Genesis, in Matthew 1. He's saying all the promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And I want you to know, at Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock, there was no party going on in hell. 
Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. Satan didn't kill Jesus. He gave up his life freely for us. And though there was no party in hell on Resurrection Sunday, in fact, he made an open shame to all these demons, we're told in Colossians 2. He openly shamed them. And he's coming back, folks. And so as we gather together as a church, as we gather together as families and celebrate the Advent, the first Advent, let's not lose sight of this is the climax. This is an ultimate battle in the larger holy war that will come to consummation when our Lord Jesus returns. Two things to think about. Remember, you're in the midst of a cosmic conflict that is profoundly spiritual. Please don't leave today ever thinking again that Satan is a mythical character that you don't have to, in your practical daily life, worry about. He wants to split up your marriage. He wants to lure your kids away from Christ. He wants to use all things media as an agent to do that. I'm not making it up. It's happening. We say, well, I don't believe it. It doesn't matter if you believe it. This is what's happening. It's not flesh and blood that you're in a battle with, that I'm in a battle with. We're in a battle with the minions and demons of the world that we cannot see, but one day it's going to be revealed, and we're going to see it. And secondly, I, I want to leave you with this. Remember, the battle doesn't belong to you. Praise God, right? You are not to be the dragon slayer. He, he has been defeated and we're told in this passage, some will ultimately give their lives as martyrs, but each of us are to give our lives, bearing witness to the testimony of the Lamb of God and the blood that has been shed, that redeemed us. It's the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that causes us to be in the train of the male child. And we are going to share in his glory. I love Luther's words here. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. The prince of darkness, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for, his, for his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him, and that word is Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, thank you for dramas. Thank you for pictures that help our simple minds rise. The wonderful gospel that you love the world so much that you gave your son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, we pray that you would help our eyes to be open to the promises you've kept to your people Israel, that your promises that you're keeping to us, the church, the promises that have all been fulfilled and we look forward to the fulfillment of the, the second coming of your son, Lord, please open our eyes that Satan is real. He's an arch enemy of Christ and an arch enemy of all of his followers. And Lord, may we look to Christ. Look to Christ's victory on the cross, his victory and resurrection. And may in the power of the train of his victory, may we enjoy victory over Satan, the flesh, and the world. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.